What do you think of Trump's economic program to the extent that there is one? Is it just classic protectionism and mercantilism, or do you see something there that has staying power in American politics? I've noticed the Buy American provisions in in some of Biden's policies. Uh, I wonder to what extent Trump's economics has a staying power. Yeah, there's been a real shift in both political parties um, away from an enthusiasm for trade, for globalization towards um you know a real fear of china some justified a lot of it unjustified and yes you definitely see continuity across um the two parties on that um you see a certain amount of continuity on um immigration too and you know in my heart of hearts do i think uh that the white house fully believes you know everything they're doing in immigration i'm not sure i hope not um but you know the the politics um as they interpret them push you very strongly in one direction so yes an idea that we want to be less open to new ideas less open to change return things to the good old days from decades ago not like deal as much with foreigners um that's a you know that's a a powerful strand across the electorate in america Hey there, this is Omar Aziz. I'm the host of the Minority Views podcast and author of Brown Boy, a memoir. You know, one of the most formative times of my life was the date of 9-15, was the date that Lehman Brothers, one of the largest investment banks in America, went bankrupt. The largest bank failure in American history. I was in my first year, just at the beginning of college at that time. So you can probably imagine that for those of us who came of age of the great economic recession of 2008, that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank this year and the continued bank failures this year and the prospects of a greater recession and economic instability are with us. And beyond the the difficulties, the frustrations that people feel, I mean, it's not an accident that Donald Trump is is polling 60-70% in the GOP primary. There are real economic frustrations and anxieties. What I wanted to do was invite someone who's been in the room where economic policy is made, not just an economist, but an economic policy maker. So I invited Jason Furman, a professor at Harvard and formerly President Obama's top economic advisor. During Obama's first term, Jason Furman served as a deputy director of the National Economic Council to Larry Summers and Gene Sperling. In this role, he was one of the architects of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the stimulus package. From 2013 to 2017, the entirety of the second Obama administration, Jason Furman was named chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors by President Obama. President Obama said of Jason Furman that he is, quote, one of the most brilliant economic minds of his generation. There's no one I'd rather turn to for straightforward, unvarnished advice that helps me to do my job, end quote. Welcome to the Minority Views Podcast on Economics 101 with Jason Furman. Well, thank you, Jason Furman, for joining us on Minority Views Podcast. Great to be here. My first question, Jason, is why did Silicon Valley Bank fail? And what have we learned 
since it failed about systemic risk? So the first thing I'd say is Silicon Valley Bank is very different from what happened in 2008. It's also probably reasonably different, but not completely different from most of the other banks um, in the United States. Um, Its failure was quite simple. Um, In 2008, it was that borrowers weren't paying back their loans. This time, Silicon Valley Bank was mostly lending to the federal government. The federal government was definitely going to repay those loans, but the face value of those bonds had fallen, which is what happens when interest rates rise. Depositors at Silicon Valley Bank got nervous about that. And based on a set of smartphone conversations and the like, they started pulling their money out. Silicon Valley Bank had to sell those government bonds earlier than it had planned. By selling them earlier than it planned, it started to lose money. That meant more people pulled their money out and they weren't going to have enough to meet all of the deposit requests. And so they got um, shut down. In many ways, it's a very classic bank run where there was an underlying problem in the bank, but then the run on the bank is what led it to fail. Had there been no run, um, that bank would probably be there um, today. What does this say more broadly? Well, other banks aren't quite as extreme as Silicon Valley Bank. They don't hold as many treasury bonds as Silicon Valley Bank did. They hedge a lot of those risks and they um, don't have depositors that are all connected you know, on the same WhatsApp chat as many of the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank. So in one respect, it's not going to be the same thing in other banks. Um, but in other respects, other banks are suffering from less extreme versions of the same. And that's why there's still some worry about systemic risks across the banking sector. What do you foresee? Like, do you foresee the U.S. government having to bail out banks five years from now, 10 years from now? I mean, is that fair to the average taxpayer? Look, did I foresee what happened in Silicon Valley Bank? No. Um, Did I know that when you raise interest rates as quickly as they've been going up over the last year, does something somewhere break because someone made a bad decision? Uh, In this case, probably the CEO, probably also the regulators that were supervising the bank. Um, Absolutely. It's not surprising that when you move this quickly, um, accidents happen. Um, Going forward, there's two possibilities. One is more crises like this, where a bank gets you know shut down in the middle of the week, and the regulator spends the weekend scrambling to put something together. Um, the other is a five or 10-year process of consolidation in the banking sector. The banks recognize their weakness. They take steps in advance to either raise more capital, combine with another bank, get acquired by another bank, and the like. Um, I think the second will, at the very minimum, happen. Um, A lot of these banks have a business model that just isn't going to work in the electronic age of people able to move their money instantly in search of the highest um, returns. And so I think a lot of these these bank models just aren't as workable um, anymore. Will, if it ends gradually over five to 10 years, that's fine. Um, if there's a lot more weekend drama like Silicon Valley Bank, um, that's a that's something to be much more worried about. Um, I can't rule that out, but you know, unless depositors get even more spooked than they have been, um, I think we might be safe from that at this point. 
How are the fundamentals of the economy right now? Because I was looking at some of the numbers, job numbers look fine, unemployment numbers look fine. There's obviously inflation and we'll get to that, but there's really a perception that the economy is broken, that everything is broken and that we seem to be headed for doomsday or something very negative. What do you make of that between the fundamentals of the economy, how are they doing, and then the perceptions of how the economy is doing? There's sort of a glass part full, a glass part empty, and you could debate the ratios. Um, you know, the employment picture is in many ways spectacular. Uh, the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, the lowest black unemployment rate ever, a compression of wages between workers at the top and workers um, at the bottom, and, you know, much, much more. So that's that's really exciting to see. The half, the part empty part of it is that um, there's a real question as to whether or not um, it's sustainable and whether it's going to last. And that's why you look at it and you have this sort of savoring the moment. I'm so excited to see the latest jobs numbers with a sort of dreaded foreboding of can it last? Will it last? And part of that centers around the issue of inflation. You were right about inflation. You've been warning about inflation before many others. Why did inflation worry you so much before? And what's happening now? Look, I was worried when I heard the the simple obvious thing was if you spend this much money, keep interest rates this low, you're going to have inflation. So it wasn't that hard. Then there were a set of fancy reasons why you wouldn't get the inflation. And... um the, you know, this reason, that reason, you know, people had all sorts of reasons and you went through them. And I, my view was, yeah, you know, when you say, oh, maybe people won't spend the money, that might be true. Or maybe they'll spend the money, but the economy will grow a lot. That might be true. Or maybe the economy will, you know, won't grow a lot, but businesses will decide they don't want to raise their price. It might be true. But each one of those things felt like a sort of one in four chance. And usually I'd rather go with sort of what's the most likely way the world will operate rather than what's like the happiest um, you know, possibility out there. And, and that's why I was more worried than, um, than I think some others were. Um, where are we right now? You know, there's one pretty simple thing. The inflation rate is running at uh, about 4.5% if you look at what it is recently. Usually when something's running at something, it tends to stay there. And so to a first approximation, your best guess of inflation in the future is also 4.5%. Um, there's some reasons to think it might be coming down. Wage growth may be slowing. Um, house uh, price rents and the like may um, be slowing. So, you know, I, I think it's more likely that inflation comes down from here than goes up from here. But I still think something like 2%, which the Fed is looking for, you know, feels reasonably unlikely. What would you have advised the Biden administration, say, a year ago on this? Is there an example of a policy they've done where you, if you were in the White House, might have said, hey, we might want to think about this. There's going to be serious inflationary impacts. Well, I mean, the biggest one is the American Rescue Plan, which was bigger than it needed to be. The economy was already recovering just fine. Uh, maybe some additional relief needed to be extended, but it didn't need a massive new um, stimulus plan. But um, beyond that, you know, there have been sort of three buckets of policies related to inflation the Biden administration has pursued. Um, the most important is they've made appointments to the Fed that I think have been excellent. 
And they have respected the Fed's independence and given the Fed the room it needs to do what it needs to do. So I think that I'd give them an A plus on. Um, the second is a set of things related to supply chains, you know, opening up ports, getting trucking, moving again, et cetera. Um, I think they've done all the right things on that too. I don't think they've added up to a lot. I think most of those problems fix themselves, but you know, I think the president probably helped um, a little bit. Um, and then the last is on, you know, continued taxing and spending policies. There, I think the administration has done much worse. Um, they've continued to um, add to the deficit. They've continued to increase spending and, and to some degree cut taxes. And um, that, I think, has added to inflation. So I think it's a sort of original sin of something too large to start with, followed by some good things and, and some bad things. How much do, do you worry about the debt? Because before this interview, I was looking up the numbers. I think it's past $31 trillion now. And a Penn Wharton study said by 2050, it'll be 225% of GDP. How much does the debt worry you? Um, Not some. Some. Not some. I was going to say not a huge amount, but it does worry me some. So, you know, the, here's, the, here's the issue. Um, the debt does need to stabilize as a share of the economy somewhere. Right now, it's roughly 100% of GDP. It's on track to rise. If you told me it was going to stabilize at 125% of GDP, I'd say that's almost certainly fine. We don't really have um, some great reason to understand why you know one debt level is okay and another's not, as long as it's not rising forever. Um, we're not on track to stabilize at 125 or even 150. So I think some adjustments are going to need to happen um, at some point. From a fiscal sustainability perspective, I'm not sure how urgent those adjustments are. Our debt service is still relatively low compared to our economy. It's expected to stay relatively low compared to our economy. So, um, you know, the combination of high debt, but also interest rates that, you know, they're rising, but they're still in the grand scheme of things on um, the lower side. I think we need to deal with it at some point. If you told me we we're going to deal with it five, eight years from now, I wouldn't be super worried about that. Is it better to deal with it now? Absolutely. Um, it would also help with inflation um, if we dealt with it now. So I wish Congress would and the president would act and do something sort of to lower the deficit to help bring down inflation and bring fiscal sustainability. But do I think it's a big mistake that they're not doing it? Mm, not really. I'm not losing a lot of sleep over the issue. Um, and why is that like in terms of long-term for future generations? I mean, this is the more or less the conservative argument that future generations will have to bear this debt and it keeps increasing. Well, why does future generations are also going to be, you know, going around and flying cars while chat GPT does their jobs for them. So they're going to be pretty rich. Um, so it's not from a moral perspective. I've never been sure about that argument. Um, normally you like to sort of take money from richer people and give money to poorer people. And our generation is a lot poorer than whoever's going to be around 100 years from now. Um, so that's sort of one moral question that I don't quite know the answer to, but I think it's more complicated than the usual slogan that you uh, that you attributed to, to others. Um, the other thing is, what are you using the debt for? I mean, some of the debt we're adding right now is for consumption, and that worries me a bit more. Some of it's for investment. Um, we're borrowing for infrastructure. We're borrowing um, to deal with climate change. I, you know, those have a rate of return too, and you want to compare that rate of return the cost of the debt. But for me, the most important thing is what's the path of interest rates? If I think interest rates are going to 
go even higher and stay higher, I'd be quite worried. Um, if I think interest rates stay where they are now and on the short end lower themselves a bit over time, um, then I'm much less worried. I gave you a critique from the right. Now I'll give you an argument from the left. Why is it, sir, that median wages have stagnated, but productivity has continued to go up? In other words, are American workers working harder for less over years? Wage growth and income growth has been disappointing for some time um, in the U.S. economy. It's actually been better since 2015, both in the couple of years before the pandemic um, and through the pandemic. So there's some signs of some improvements there. But the longer term picture is not great um, for wages. I think there's a few things. One is productivity growth actually has slowed and is part of the problem. I think if we did have faster productivity growth, more innovation, that um, wages would be faster. But the second is you need productivity growth that complements the skills of middle income Americans. And you need probably more sort of investments in education um, and skills and the like. And so we've had um, an increase in, in you know, basically inequality. I mean, the, the fact you cited is is the just the flip side of inequality um, going up. Um, I also think institutions have evolved over time. The minimum wage has eroded. Labor unions are less powerful. And all of these things are taking a toll. So I'm basically, you know, I completely agree with your framing of the problem. And my solution is basically all of the above. Let's invest more in productivity. Let's invest, uh, you know, do what we can to bring inequality down. And by the way, if at the end of the day um, we can't do enough economically, let's do things like expand the child tax credit so uh, middle class families can get a little bit more of a benefit um, from that. Do you think, sir, that globalization has been a net benefit to the average American? In other words, the various, and I would define that as various trade deals. So that would include NAFTA, China's entry into the WTO, and the various processes of offshoring, et cetera. Has that benefited the average American? Absolutely. Um, you know, first of all, I, I'd broaden it. You know, and here's a question I'd ask you: Would you rather? Uh, I'm, you don't need to answer. It can be a rhetorical question. Uh, that the container had never been invented, so we couldn't get cheap things from abroad. Would you want to, and this is a famous thing an economist once said, put rocks in our harbors so things can't come in as easily or come out as easily. I think when we think about that, it's sort of intuitive to us, oh, of course we wouldn't be better off by banning containers or putting rocks in our harbors. And you know, when you look at the stuff, I mean, we trivialize it like, oh, you know, we're selling our souls for cheap underwear. You know, you care about the living standards of Americans. The fact that you have to spend so much less of your budget on food and on clothing than you used to is a really, really profoundly important thing. Things would be much worse if that weren't the case. Um, I'd also add that, um, you know, variety. You know, you used to be able to get avocados for, you know, a very short window of the year, fresh fruit. You could get certain fruits were in season, certain fruits weren't in season. Now we can get things year round. So there's a lot of variety. Um, and the last thing I'd say is people have underemphasized the degree to which the benefit, the consumption benefits of trade are actually really progressive. Um, if you're sort of a high income household, you're spending a lot of your money on services and fancy designer things. If you're lower or moderate income, you're probably buying a lot of stuff that's made in China. You're buying a lot of manufactured goods. You're buying a lot of things at Walmart. Um, and that's where trade has really um, had the biggest benefit. Yeah, but shouldn't we, like, in light of the earlier question, 
prices have gone down. That's right. I'm not sure if that, if that should be the ultimate metric. Like I like cheap prices as well. My family goes to Walmart, but if all the mom and shop stores that I grew up around all around have all gone bankrupt and none of those people have jobs anymore, or those jobs have gone overseas or whatever, Walmart's eaten them up. I'm not sure if that's a net benefit to our community and society, even if you know I pay less at Walmart every single time I go there. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I don't think that small business example is uh, is the best example because, you know, the small businesses are selling important things too. Um, so they're all, so I don't think it's about globalization. I think that's a different thing. Um, you know, in my view, those small businesses aren't particularly uh, spectacular places to work, frankly. Um, they tend to actually pay less than Walmart. They tend to do things like make you work more hours without paying you for it. You know, you ask, um, you know, where you're more likely to be abused. Um, you know, I think Walmart's imperfect, but the small businesses are are even worse. I might be a part of a union, though, at, at, at the small business shop that's worked for 30, 40 years. Yeah. So one, but yeah, but just in general, uh, you know, training opportunities, opportunities for businesses, I think we shouldn't romanticize small businesses. And then, you know, I sort of care where people want to buy stuff. And if people don't want to buy stuff at them. Um, that's something. So I think there's sort of the Walmartization of the economy um, and the globalization. They're two different things because, again, the small businesses are selling stuff they buy from from all over the world. Um, do I think everything should be like a boutique in Brooklyn that's sort of handcrafted by American workers and more expensive? Uh, that may be more to my taste, but I wouldn't impose that on everyone else. What do you think of Trump's economic program to the extent that there is one? Is it just classic protectionism and mercantilism, or do you see something there that has staying power in American politics? I've noticed the Buy American provisions in, in some of Biden's policies. Uh, I wonder to what extent Trump's economics has a staying power. Yeah, there's been a real shift in both political parties um, away from an enthusiasm for trade, for globalization towards um you know a real fear of china some justified a lot of it unjustified and yes you definitely see continuity across um the two parties on that um you see a certain amount of continuity on um immigration too and you know in my heart of hearts do i think uh that the white house fully believes you know everything they're doing in immigration i'm not sure i hope not um but you know the the politics um as they interpret them push you very strongly in one direction so yes an idea that we want to be less open to new ideas less open to change return things to the good old days from decades ago not like deal as much with foreigners um that's a you know that's a, a powerful strand across the electorate in america do you think we could disentangle our supply chains from china or are we just too there seems to be a movement now to bring some of those supply chains home. Is that just a fanciful dream? Well, you know, let's think back to three years ago. Um, the only reason there were any masks in the United States was because they were coming from China. And the only reason that by May of 2020, there wasn't a shortage of masks and we could all get as many as we wanted was because they were coming from China. So global supply chains can also increase um, your resilience if we just wanted to make everything in America um, we'd have a lot more shortages. The baby formula shortage last year could have been solved instantly if we had been willing to import baby formula from Germany. It was the ban on imports because for some reason we thought their formula is good enough for babies in Germany, but not the United States. 
um, that led to that shortage. So I would not equate lack of resilience with globalization. In fact, more often than not, globalization helps resilience, but not always. Um, can we disentangle from China? You know, the United States has been talking at delinkage for years now. Um, the trade volumes are still very high. The cross-border investment is still very high. Um, and the reason is that the economic benefits of all of it are very high. So I think we can reshape it. I think we can nudge it up or down. Um, but can we dramatically change it? I don't think so. What is your take on China and the United States' long-term competition with China? Where do you fall on that? Economically, I think it's positive sum in terms of geopolitics and national security. Some of it is zero sum. And so if it were just a matter of the economy, I'd say the more economic interaction with China, um, the better. We're better off because of it. They're better off because of it. Um, but it's not just the economy. We have to take into account you know, that they're using technologies related to weapons, that they're increasingly aggressive um, around the world. And so I think we should be willing to pay um, an economic cost for you know greater national security, and that's basically what I think we're we're doing right now. But I don't think we should kid ourselves. I don't think we're going to make ourselves better off. You know that median income problem you talked about before. Um, we're probably going to make that a little bit worse um, by being more aggressive with China, not better. Do you support incentives for American businesses to manufacture at home or penalties? Uh only in very limited circumstances related to national security products. Beyond that, you know, if you want to deal with climate change, um, you should be passionate about getting the cheapest solar panels and the cheapest wind turbines, no matter where they're made. Um, what matters is that you're using mm -hmm. that technology, not uh, not who's making it. And, and look, I mean, I, I think there's just a general drift towards um, more. Um, you know, enthusiasm for corporate subsidies. I mean, I, I find it almost strange. Like, why does the, you know, a whole group of people advocating like the best way to accomplish your goal is to give money to companies? If you want to deal with climate change, like there's better ways to deal with it than giving money to companies. If you want to deal with, you know, whatever issue, there's just a lot better ways um, to deal with it. Should there be a tax on billionaires? Should we have higher taxes on high income households? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, that's a sort of values question as much as it's an economic question, but, um, you know, the economics can inform it how best to do that. You can debate that I've, um, I've supported and been enthusiastic about president Biden's proposal to basically tax your gains as they accrue. So you own a stock that's, you know, a million dollars, the value of the stock goes up to $2 million. Even if you don't sell it, you pay taxes on your gains. That's my preferred approach. I prefer that to a wealth tax for a variety of reasons, some of them economic, but also very simply that the wealth tax would be ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So it's just a real colossal waste of time to, to do it in the current political and legal environment. What about the doubling of the tax on stock buybacks? Is that more performative or is there substantive benefits that could emerge from that? Um. I, I think it's probably worth doing. Um, right now, we have stock buybacks or tax preferred um, compared to dividends. There's a variety of ways to fix it. I think that's sort of a crude way to get at it, but it you know it it, it probably helps. And and look, it's hard to get revenue, and that raises a lot of revenue. So, um, is that a perfect tax policy? Probably not. Um, is more revenue better than less revenue? 
Uh, you know, almost certainly yes. What do you think of the alternative currency movement, digital currencies, etc.? And do you think that the U.S. dollar could be replaced as the global reserve currency in the near future? Uh, there's two different issues there. Uh, one, digital currencies. Almost everything I do is digital. I pay with Apple Pay. I pay with Venmo. I keep my money on a bank account where it's a string of ones and zeros. I rarely touch physical dollar bills. Um, but all of that is digital representations of the U.S. dollar. They're not, I don't, you know, never touched Bitcoin or, or any of those things um, directly or indirectly. So um, we're already very digital. Um, we're almost completely digital already. It just is the thing that the digits represent is the dollar. The, um, uh, you know, do I think that that's going to change in favor of some other digital currency? No, not, no one's going to tr ever trust some private entity that comes up with a digital currency, unless that digital currency is itself backed up by a central bank um, and a fiat currency. And when you looked at all the attempts to create stable coins, for example, they're all linked to the dollar, linked to the euro, something else. There's then a separate question of, could you see migration from the dollar being what backs those things to the euro or to China's renminbi or something else? Um, Maybe, but I, I'm sort of skeptical. People have been saying this my entire professional career that the dollar is about to end as the reserve currency and something else is about to rise. And you don't need to be the best thing in the world. You just need to be better than the alternatives. And China's pretty untransparent and unconvertible and, and uncertain. And so there's a lot of risks being there relative to the dollar. Um, and Europe doesn't completely have its act together either. Um, the last thing I should say is I don't care that much. Um, I think we get some benefits from being the reserve currency, but also pay some costs because of it as well. I'd rather that we keep it, but I don't think it's a, a particularly big deal if we lose it. Jason, I want to ask you about your time at the White House. What is the most important piece of advice that you gave the president? Um, the most important advice? Um you know, my let me just step back and say my philosophy of advising, and this is really life, is you should be happy if you can make a big contribution to a small thing. Right. Um, you should also be happy if you can make a small contribution to a big thing. And let me give you one example in each category. Um, you know, making more mobile spectrum available for our smartphones so that you could have 5G. Um, there was a shortage of spectrum. Mm. I basically championed and pushed forward a plan to unlock that spectrum by having um, auctions where you'd buy it from TV stations, sell it to the public. And, um, you know, that was a small thing in the grand scheme of what the administration did. But it probably, you can actually measure it and quantify it. It probably made the world like, you know, 50 to $100 billion better. Um, 50 to $100 billion is small relative to our GDP, but like, I don't know. That's sort of a cool thing to be involved with. And, and I had a very big involvement in that. And I think it's possible it wouldn't have happened um, without me. So I made a big contribution to that small thing. Um, at the very other end of the spectrum, I think immigration reform was one of the two, one of three most profoundly important issues that we faced as an administration. I didn't have a lot to offer in terms of advice. The president knew what I knew, which is that immigration is good for the economy. He didn't really need my help with that. 
Um, how to get more immigration was a super political thing of trading this group off from that group, creating this political compromise, whatever. I didn't have anything to offer on that. But the Council of Economic Advisors, we did some reports where we basically said, like, here are the benefits for the economy. Um, those reports increased the chances of our plan passing by like that much. But our plan was that good. And so you take a tiny little contribution to a big thing. And, you know, I'm proud of what we did on that, too. Um, something where I might have had, you know, maybe even a medium-sized contribution to a big thing was the Affordable Care Act and, you know, the work, especially on the tax side of that. But um, in general, yeah, I think you should sort of think about um, what your impact is and that's sort of how much you change things times how important the thing you changed was. If you work mm -hmm. in a soup kitchen, you're not changing anything other than the food you're serving to the people in front of you. but those people may not have gotten food, but for you. So that's a, you know, that's a big contribution too. And the change multiplies and builds over time as we've seen with the ACA and some of the other policies you mentioned. Yeah. Oh, look, under President Clinton, um, we were working, you know, I was trying to come up with a plan related to poverty. I called a uh, person who's now a colleague of mine at Harvard Kennedy School and, and said, what should we do? And he said, here's what you should do to the earned income tax credit. So I shopped it around to people. We put it in the budget. It was in President Clinton's last budget. When we put it in the budget, I knew there was a 0% chance it would pass that year. It's like the Republicans were in charge. There was no way they were going to pass anything on our budget. Um, eight years later, President Obama got it done, and it's in the law today. And there's, I don't know, 5, 10 million people either out of poverty or in less poverty because of it. So you just never quite know how something you put forward will you know, bounce over time. And I tell people, you know, don't give up, keep trying. But that means uh, I'm hearing that you shouldn't also quit either. Like you could have not put that in the budget that year thinking, well, it's a loser anyways, but instead you still, you know, like it, it wasn't going to happen that year, but it was going to happen, but you have to get the ball rolling at some point. Exactly. And, you know, and I, I think you should sort of always be advancing a portfolio of ideas. Take climate change. I think a carbon tax is just about the best way to deal with climate change. It's been politically impossible in the United States. Lots of other countries in the world have done carbon taxes. Um, so now the question is, um, do you give up on a carbon tax? No. You advance things like the, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, climate subsidies. You advance things like regulations, and you advance a carbon tax, and you're never quite sure you know, which one will land and, and when it will land. I mean, when I sat in the White House... There were so many times somebody said, oh, this will never pass. And it did. There were other times people are like, this will definitely pass. And it didn't. And so I'd rather, you know, put ideas out there, put good ideas, maybe even a variety of ideas and and see what see what sticks and see what works. Because, boy, is politics hard to predict. Oh, yeah. Can you take us into the Oval Office, Jason, when you are about to do a briefing? What are you thinking of? What are you running through when you're actually sitting there? What's that moment like in the room where it happens for people who have no idea. Yeah. So, I mean, the president would do his smaller meetings in the Oval Office. So I would once a month have the jobs numbers and it would be just me and the chief of staff would go in. I'd be doing all the speaking. The chief of staff would just be present. And sometimes the president would want to know, like, you know, he'd have two minutes and he'd want to know what the jobs number is. Other times he'd want to have a half an hour conversation about what it meant, what we could do about it, you know, some other policy coming down the pike. 
And you know, I wouldn't know if he's going to be in the two-minute mood or the 30-minute mood. Now it's important to be able to read that mood. Um, you know, I once went in and, and there had just been a, a profoundly horrifying school shooting, which I was more affected by than the jobs numbers. And I I could barely think about the economy because I was picturing, you know, what had happened to those children. Um, the president walked in, he had just given a statement about it, and he wanted to talk about the economy. Um, you know. Is he better at compartmentalizing than me? Um, does he have to be better because he had so many different profound and tragic things he needed to deal with um, all the time? Did he want something to get his mind off that tragedy by talking about something else? You know, I, I don't know what was um, running through his head in that moment. All I know is what was, you know, running through his head was, you know, was certainly the Jason, you know, I need you to be advising me on the economy. I don't need you to. Uh, be, you know, emoting about you know, events that you have no control over and no ability to impact. You actually have an important set of things and you need to keep your eye on uh, on that ball. He didn't say that, but I'm just mm-hmm. sort of reading between the lines. Is there an area, and you don't have to answer this, but I'm just personally curious where, say, you're briefing the president and you do have an actual substantive disagreement. I mean, he's obviously open to the being uh, convinced, but there does seem to be a disagreement there. Yeah. And there's two ways to disagree. One is I think option A is the best for the economy and option B is not nearly as good for the economy. And one is, you know, he says, you know what? I disagree with you. I think option B is better for the economy. Another one is, you know what, Jason, I agree with you. You are totally right. But guess what? Option A is political suicide where Congress will never pass it. And so I'm going to do option B, but thank you for the information. (laughs) Um, you know, I got things of both forms. I'd say a little bit more of the second form um, than the first form. Um, the second form is the system working. I mean, if he had listened to every piece of advice I gave him in eight years, um, he would have had a disastrous presidency. He wouldn't have been reelected. Um, it just, mm-hmm. you know, just things wouldn't have passed because I wasn't optimizing everything for his reelection um, and for passing Congress. But um, so, I, so I think a sort of interplay of politics and economics is important. Um, but it's not like economics gives you a unified, definitive answer to a lot of things either. And so you really do need to hear both different economic perspectives, which he encouraged and welcomed and had other advisors to. Um, and he did his own reading and he did his own thinking. And he's really, really good at that and and would push back. Um, I think sometimes he'd be satisfied with the answers I gave when he pushed back. Um, other times he wouldn't be. And um you know, I, I think that's good. And, and you know, in general, I'd say, I mean, you asked about economic advice. If you ever see an advisor in the White House who gets their way 100% of the time, that advisor is the least powerful person in the White House. Why are they the least powerful person? Because what they're doing is predicting what the president's going to do and saying, oh, hey, you should do that thing that you want to do. That's not power. That's just sycophancy. Um you know, if you get your way 20% of the time and the 20% never would have happened without you, but because of you, it did, that's pretty powerful and pretty impressive. Um, you know, I'm not sure I never kept track of my ratio, but uh, probably somewhere between those two. What do you do if you are in an organization where you want to be, you want to be able to comfortably give a dissenting opinion or something that makes the organization better, but there is a culture of sycophancy and being a yes person. Look, 
wasn't like that in the Obama administration. In fact, it was the opposite. If he heard three people in a row say the same thing, he'd be like, I want to find someone to make the opposite argument. If he couldn't find someone sitting at the table to make the opposite argument, he'd maybe try to find someone sitting in the back row behind the table um, to make that argument. So he really valued um, debate and discussion. So I, you know, I had, you know, I, in the Trump administration, by all accounts, um, probably uh, less so than um, the attitude President Obama had towards those sorts of things. And, you know, I would have had a lot harder time working in the Trump administration for many, many reasons, uh, that being one of them. Hmm. I read, Jason, that the first person you met at Harvard was Matt Damon. Is that true? Did you guys like talk about economics at that time? Like, were you already like batting around economic ideas with Matt Matt Damon and Harvard? What was that? Yeah, like? so he's one of the very first people I met, and and he was my uh, my roommate my first year. Um, I don't remember talking about economics with him. I do remember we did talk a bunch about like probability and statistics, and that's because there was this test you had to take when you arrived on probability and statistics. If you passed it, you could skip one particular course. If you failed it. Um, you had to take that course. I spent a lot of time tutoring him for that test, and he missed by only one point and ended up having to take the course. But I think he didn't blame me. Um, but maybe you should ask, get him on your podcast and ask him. If you can make the introduction, I'll interview him. <laughs> Last question, Jason, is three books that you would recommend for our listeners. Um, they don't have to be economics books, just three books that come to mind that have shaped you in your life. So, um, Obviously, so many books. Uh, one, I would say, is The Myth of the Rational Voter by Brian Kaplan, which goes through why people are just incredibly uninformed, especially on economic issues when they vote, and why it's unfortunately rational to be uninformed, because no one voter actually changes the outcome very much. So why not just vote in a way that makes you feel good without having to work hard to understand the consequences of your vote? Um, a second is a book by um, Joe Heinrich called um, The Weirdest People in the World. That's basically a sort of cultural deep history of how the set of attitudes that are very common now, at least in certain cultures and to some degree globally, of you know thinking and acting in a certain way came to be because they weren't always that way and the role they played in the economy. And it combines evolution genetics, economics, politics, culture, religion, all sorts of things in one book. Um, and then, you know, maybe uh, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman just changes the way you think and maybe tries to get you to think a little bit more slowly and overcome the biases that get uh, in our way. Jason Furman, thank you so much, professor at Harvard, top economic advisor in the White House. Thank you for joining us, Minority Views. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in again to the Minority Views podcast. We appreciate having you here. Feel free to like, subscribe. You'll get notifications when new episodes come out. We got more guests coming, more conversations happening. And we'll see you again next time right here on the Minority Views podcast. I'm Omar Aziz. Cheers. Cheers.